in the summer of 2015, while I was the offensive coordinator at Purdue University, Morgan Burke, then our athletic director, was leading his all-sports departmental meeting. Every coach and athletic employee was in attendance. So there was a couple of hundred people. The keynote speaker that day was the lead attorney slash legal counsel for the Big Ten. I can't remember his name, but he was an old guy with a thick gray mustache. He reminded me of John Bolton. His talk came in the wake of football players at Northwestern University, led by quarterback Kane Coulter, pursuing the possibility of unionizing. This lawyer went on to hammer home the point that, quote, student athletes, the term he continually used, cannot and should not make money while playing college sports. The NCAA's bedrock principle of amateurism would be lost. My blood was boiling, literally. I was shaking as this man was talking. At the end, he didn't ask if there were any questions, yet I raised my hand and asked, what's at stake for Big Ten universities or any university if athletes make money off their name, image, and likeness? The lawyer hemmed and hawed a bit as the athletic director, Morgan Burke, walked onto the stage and ended the meeting. The next day, I was called into our head football coach's office, a man named Daryl Hazel. He'd spoken with Morgan Burke and asked, what are you doing, John? We as coaches have a pretty good deal. Unsurprisingly, I was fired after that season as I didn't let it go. Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. Today, on Going Deep, we're going to discuss a hot topic, name, image, and likeness in collegiate athletics. Starting on July 1st, 2021, six states will have laws that go into effect preventing the NCAA from restricting collegiate athletes from making money on their name, image, and likeness. Keep in mind that this NIL legislation does not mean that universities will be paying the athletes a dime. This legislation is about things like endorsements, commercials, car deals, social media posts. So very likely the main cost for universities and coaching staffs will be opportunity costs. That is who gets to benefit from these newly allowed funding streams. Your favorite college player may be allowed to get paid for promoting products. 
Maybe he or she will do an advertisement for a local car dealership and receive the use of a leased car the way every other athletic department employee does now. Maybe the car dealership will decide to work with famous players exclusively instead of anonymous athletic administrators. For years, cheerleaders have been making huge amounts of money endorsing products on social media, primarily Instagram. Cheerleading does not fall under the jurisdiction of the NCAA. Recently, the New York Times wrote that Shannon Woolsey, a Texas Tech cheerleader, can earn more than $5,000 per social media post. And Woolsey explains, a lot of companies like stories of me sitting and talking about the product and making it seem like it's not an ad. Companies that college and high school cheerleaders promote on social media for money include Crocs, L'Oreal, American Eagle, Loki, Nissan, Amazon, FabFitFun, Colgate, Smile Direct Club, Urban Decay, and Veer Bradley handbags. Presently, if a college or high school athlete were to promote a product like these cheerleaders are doing and they receive financial benefit for that, they would be banned from competing for an NCAA member institution for violating the NCAA policy on amateurism. It makes you think, if cheerleaders are able to make serious money off their name, image, and likeness, then what will some of the most famous athletes be able to make? And how nervous does this make the athletic administrators and the NCAA? Today at Purdue... Five years after John was fired, all college athletes must join Empower, which is, as Purdue describes it, a brand management initiative. Purdue Athletics is working with the Cranert School of Management there at Purdue. David Hummel, the dean of the Cranert School, says that the Empower program, quote, will prepare students to cultivate maximize and monetize their personal brands, giving them an advantage over their peers, end quote. Tom Mitchell is Purdue's Associate Athletic Director for Compliance. That means he's in charge of making sure all NCAA rules and regulations are followed. It's fair to say that Tom and I butted heads many times when players were being unfairly targeted for NCAA violations. Rest assured, he was not an advocate for players. He was there to protect the interests of the university. Tom Mitchell is recently quoted as saying, and I imagine saying it with a straight face, quote, we, Purdue, also have a track record of fighting for student athletes to pursue their passions as it relates to NIL, end quote. Interestingly, The state of Indiana is only one of 13 states in the country that have not yet introduced a state bill allowing athletes to earn money from their name, image, and likeness. You see, starting on July 1st, six states enact legislation allowing college athletes to make money from their name, image, and likeness. Those states are Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, and New Mexico. 
other states are preparing to join them in the near future. It's not a coincidence that five of the six states are in SEC territory. And by SEC, I mean the Southeastern Conference. Imagine the recruiting advantage the University of Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Alabama will have over Purdue if players going to those schools are allowed to make money while Purdue athletes are not. And this is where it gets a little confusing. So come July 1st, some states will allow collegiate athletes to make serious money and some will not. Indiana will not be allowing college athletes to make money from their name, image, and likeness yet. They're preparing as if they are. Now might be a good time to call a lawyer. And our guest is also a professor who actually taught the first law course on name, image, and likeness at the University of New Hampshire. And he's someone who knows a lot about name, image, and likeness movements and the impending legislation. Welcome to Going Deep, Michael McCann. So I, I teach at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. I've been on the faculty there for about nine years, eight, eight years, and I direct the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute at the law school. I teach primarily sports law or media law related courses, and uh, I've been a, a law professor since uh, this is my 16th, 17th year. I've been doing it uh, a while. And uh, I've, I've taught at other schools as well, but, but I'm at UNH and uh, I'm from Massachusetts. So it's a part of the country that I'm very familiar with. I'm a lawyer as well. I've been a lawyer for nearly 20 years and I've practiced in the area of sports law, antitrust law, some intellectual property law and business law as well. The uh, other stuff that I do would be journalism. And uh, I write for Sportico, which is a publication launched by the publishers of Rolling Stone and Variety. And uh, it's been going on for about a year, and it's, it's exciting to be part of the venture. Prior to that, I wrote for Sports Illustrated for 13 years. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. I, I didn't know I was going to go into journalism. It wasn't something that I sort of set out to do, but it came about. And uh, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to have that platform uh, as, as you both know, with academic writing, the audience can be somewhat small. So to be able to write to, to a mainstream audience, I think, helps a lot. Well, indeed. And thanks for joining us. You know, yes. when I look at your UNH courses, I know you taught you taught a course specifically on name, image and likeness. Am I right? I, son of a gun. It makes me want to go back to college, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm teaching it again. This It's actually going on now as well. So. Last year, I created the Name, Image, and Likeness course. It is for law students and attorneys, but also others that are interested in the field, including compliance officers at athletic departments across the country. And the focus of the class is just what the title indicates. It's really on the developing area of Name, Image, and Likeness law, how states are now adopting statutes that will change the topic, how the NCAA could take action how Congress could take action. There's a lot of ways in which this could play out. And it's timely because on July 1, 
as of now, six states and maybe there'll be more will have statutes that go into effect on that day. We'll yeah. see what happens over the next month. There could be some late breaking developments that right. alter that. That's so, right. so that's a great segue into where we wanted to dig in with you first. I mean, for those of us involved in, in the sports world for a long time, you know, John and I have been, it's over three decades of time in big time sports. This whole idea of name, image, and likeness has been something we've been talking about for a while, but not the larger, you know, the larger public or your average sports fan may not have been talking about it. And, and here it is, and you've been involved in this issue for a long, long time, but here it is really coming you know, into the forefront in terms of law and legislation. And our, you know, our focus is always on the impact of players. You know, what, what does this mean for players? But I wonder if you could comment just on, you know, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, New Mexico. These are all the states that as of July 1st are going to have laws about this. Um, can we start with Georgia? Like that, that has this pooling arrangement and let's use the lens of, of impact on players and, you know, whose needs and interests are centered in some of this legislation. Yeah. I mean, and I would say as a baseline point, what the legislation in Georgia and the other States do is it really, it, it expresses that there's a right that's, that's always existed that schools have prevented athletes from enjoying. And the right is the right of publicity. It's a right we all have in our ability to use our identity for commercial purposes and to ensure that when others use our identity for commercial purposes, that there's some type of consent and compensation. And these rights have been around uh, at least since the 1950s, if we want to look at some of the case law, but really before then as well. So what these statutes do is to say, College athletes have these rights. Now, under these laws, schools can't take adverse action against them for using these rights. So they can't strip them of their scholarship or deny them eligibility to play a sport or enforce an NCAA rule that says they can't get money in an endorsement deal or a sponsorship and still play a sport. These laws say it's now illegal under state law to prevent athletes from doing that. Now, the interesting thing for schools, and I will touch on the athletes, but it puts schools in, a, in sort of a tough spot, at least in terms of the law, because on one hand, there's a law saying they can't enforce these membership rules. On the other, they have a contractual relationship with the NCAA to enforce those rules. So one way or another, they're gonna do something illegal. And it's a tough spot. I'm not, I'm not saying like the schools are the victims, but it, it for school general counsel, it's going to be a, a tricky area to navigate because no matter what they do, they're breaking some type of legal obligation. The, I think for the student athletes and, and the athletes, we'll use student athlete as a phrase just because that's the, you know, that's the phrase that the NCAA prefers. But I think I, I usually say college athlete. Um, I think, uh, and, and, I, and I think it varies who we're talking about. I mean, I think for some, they are students, probably most are students. I, I teach an undergraduate course where I have athletes in the class and they are students who play a sport. But I think as we see at this, at the higher level where they're generating a lot of income and maybe they're only there for a year, uh, you know, what's the right label can be debated. But 
for for Georgia, they under this law, under Georgia's law, like the other laws in the in the other states, they'll be able to sign endorsement deals. They'll be able to be paid to influence on social media. They'll be paid to sponsor a camp. So if they go back home over the summer, and this I I don't see a lot of college athletes landing endorsement deals. I mean, there there are NBA players and NFL players without endorsement deals. There just are not that many people that have the sort of cachet that are likely going to net endorsement deals. But, and that's how these NIL laws are often being talked about. I think it's the sponsorships. I think it's the going back home, being paid a thousand dollars or whatever to put your name next to a camp and not worry about your NCAA issue. It's not, you're not going to get rich, but for a college student, that's a lot of money. And that could be, that could really help them. And I would just say with Georgia, the, there, you mentioned the pooling mechanism. So under the law, schools can elect to, although it sounds like Uni- University of Georgia won't do this, can elect to uh, require that up to 75% of athletes' endorsement, sponsorship, influencing money gets put aside and then is pooled together so that all of the athletes in the program get a portion of it. Uh, I, 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 it's unlikely that schools, I think, are really going to do that because it, it sort of takes away the recruiting advantage. Because if you're, you could go to play in Georgia or play at Ole Miss, you might go to Ole Miss because no one's going to take your endorsement money away. Thanks for listening to Going Deep. We'll be right back with more regarding name, image, and likeness. Welcome back to Going Deep. Our guest, Michael McCann, professor at the University of New Hampshire and writer, journalist for thesportico.com. When I think of these six states, uh, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, New Mexico kind of being the outlier in there, but five of those six states have something in common, the Southeastern Conference. And I don't necessarily think of those states as being ultra progressive when it comes to legislation. And so could you talk a little bit about the recruiting aspect uh, and why these states might be leading the charge as opposed to maybe a state like Indiana that hasn't even written legislation yet regarding it, yet they're preparing for this oncoming name, image, and likeness phenomena. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's, tip- it's normally schools in the Southeast have really taken the, for- taken the lead on name, image, and likeness. And I think it is for recruiting purposes that this will allow coaches in those states to not worry about a coach in another state being able to tell the recruit, hey, you come to play at my school, we can't pay you, but what you can do is go out and sign endorsement deals, and we have to allow you to do that. So I think that the worry is sort of the the competitive landscape, right, that if you're coaching at Georgia, 
you're worried that Nick Saban is going to say, hey, come to Alabama, and not only are we a program that, that wins and sends players to the NFL, but in addition, under state law, you can sign endorsement deals. It's going to be hard for recruiting, and it's going to be hard for Clemson. You know, Clemson's not, it is not in a state that has an NIL statute. They, you know, obviously it's a great program and it's got a lot of things going for it, but I, I don't know, you, if, if you're a recruit and the parent and you're trying to make a decision and it's cl- a close call and in one of them you can go sign endorsement deals and one you can't, I have a feeling that could be impactful. So I think it, you're right. It's, it's, these states are not known as sort of being progressive, but uh, they are, I, I think they're competitive and there's also a libertarian argument that uh, is important to raise where, you know, why can't you sign a contract? I mean, the idea, right. right. I mean, there's, even if somebody's conservative in in a libertarian sense, they're going to find NCAA rules problematic. And I think we saw that not to change the subject, but in the Alston hearing for the Supreme court, where the conservative justices were really, really against the NCAA Right. And that that struck out that it was sort of the libertarian notion to it, I think, played a role. Yeah, we've talked about that on the show, how, you know, people come to this kind of like discussed with the NCAA from different places. For some, it's about individual rights. From some, it's about, you know, racial equity and justice and, and those kind of questions. I wonder if you could say just a little bit more, if you know or are aware of kind of the the origin story of the pooling arrangement. I'm, I, I smell something there. I'm like, the, you know, maybe they won't do it because you're right. It's stupid in terms of recruiting to do something like that, but it's there. And it just, as a, as an ethicist and a theologian and, you know, kind of somebody who looks at social movements, whenever we have a kind of formal, you know, kind of permission giving to institutions um, to, you know, kind of hoard resources or take away somebody's resources, especially from a, a demographic who has not even been allowed to, you know, generate income. You know, they've been allowed to generate revenue for other people, but their, their own kind of um, ability to generate revenue has not been something they've benefited from financially, at least while they're in college. Do you know much about the pooling arrangement and where that came from? Was it a late kind of put into the bill or I'm just wondering if there's anything else there? Yeah, I don't know the origin of it. And I was surprised that it was there. I I think it was put in relatively late. It certainly got no attention until the end. So that makes me believe that it was put in late. But in terms of the day to day, the Georgia legislative process, I was not. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, monitoring that. So I don't know why or when, it, but it it's, didn't get attention really yeah. until the end. I mean, you're right. Why pool the money when you can, you can make a compelling argument that uh, it, you can, there, there's a race issue, right? Where mm-hmm. in many cases, the ones that are generating a lot of that money are going to be African-American. Mm-hmm. And uh, why is it that they have to give up? Why isn't it the school giving up the money? Why is it the player, right? I mean, and I think that th- these are fair questions to ask. I mean, I, I think I think it's right that the schools probably are not going to use this this lever 
but it's no, I don't think it's going to be for that reason. I think it's because they don't want to hurt their their recruiting. But right, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it just is funny because with the other the other thing that players have to do the NLI, the National Letter of Intent. There's a lot about that that traditionally players haven't realized what they're signing away. And um, so there's often these little embedded things. I wonder if before we move on, if you could just say a little bit more about other restrictions that are a part of this, like they can't do branding work with, you know, for alcohol or something like that. If there are other restrictions in terms of what um, this NIL legislation you know, kind of brings with it in terms of what the player's capacity is. Yeah, so there's some variance among the states on that. And in Alabama, for instance, there are restrictions on uh, the athletes can't sign endorsement deals with gambling companies, with adult entertainment companies. So that's one, the state's weighing in saying we're just outright prohibiting those types of deals. Now, it's interesting in th- that some schools have deals with gambling companies themselves in other states, but that's a separate time. You know, why can the school do it, but the, the student can't? Uh, sep- separate issue, but always worth noting, you know, this sort of... It, oh, yeah, John, it, Interesting to note that the new commissioner of the PAC-12 as well comes from a background in gambling in Las Vegas from MGM. In, quite interesting. Yeah, and I, and I think that the... the the sort of notion of the, the sort of vice of gambling, at least public attitudes have changed towards it. I think uh, the three of us are of enough years in life to know that, that the viewpoint on that has changed uh, quite a bit. And, and I guess Alabama, maybe not, at least based on that law, but that's one source of restriction. Another common one is that athletes can't sign endorsement deals that conflict with contracts already signed by their schools. So a school has a sponsorship with Nike, the athlete wouldn't be able to sign a deal, presumably with Under Armour or some other rival of Nike. That's another restriction. There are also uh, issues of fair market value, that that is, a, that, that, that is a concept that has not been really teased out, but the schools or maybe larger, the conferences and the NCAA are worried that endorsement deals will be cover for money under the table so the athlete could sign in a quote quote endorsement deal for five hundred thousand dollars when there's no way that that would be his his value or her value if this was a real endorsement contract that it's sort of a way of cloaking pay for play and they i think all of them all of the states are thinking of ways of how to come up with some fair system for determining fair market value who would decide that uh, how that how that gets enforced? A lot of these issues haven't yet been clarified. That too is an interesting thing to hold together with, like coaches' salaries and how fair market value just keeps getting. <laughs> it's just like. Woo, crazy. It's whatever we say it is. So <laughs> it's the marketplace, right? That's right. There's no fair market value, right? That's, college coaches' salaries. It's whatever it no, takes to get right. the guy we want. That's no the fair market value. Right. That's and, it. And, 
and I've been in many of these recruiting battles, it seems as if there's an assumption being made that money isn't passing hands <laughs> as right now. I mean, it's come out Zion Williamson was and his family was paid extravagantly from Adidas uh, over the last couple of years. And I firsthand have seen how some college football programs feed money under the table to athletes compelling them to come to their school. Mike, what are the inevitable problems with state by state legislation versus national legislation? And why has the NCAA failed to get out in front of this and maybe get some type of national legislation? We might be looking at a mess. Yeah, and I think it's it's a big mistake on the part of the NCAA to allow this to happen. They have, they have this should have been resolved twenty years ago. I mean, the fact Indeed. that we're in twenty twenty one with this as with this as an issue, I think, is really a sign of the danger of inertia, right? With an organization like the NCAA has just sort of not evolved on this topic, while the whole world around it has. I mean. I, there are very people who oppose NIL at this point. You know, some people don't want college athletes to be employees. There are, there are other sort of more divisive topics, but the fact that NIL is even a controversy itself in 2021 says a lot about how the NCAA has handled it. And it, the NCAA could have resolved this in the Ed O'Bannon case. Short sidebar for our listeners. In August of 2015, U.S. District Court Judge Claudia Wilkins ruled that the NCAA cannot prevent athletes from selling the rights to their name, image, and likeness. That was the famous O'Bannon versus the NCAA case that Michael speaks of and wrote a book about. Ed O'Bannon is a former UCLA basketball star who, with 19 others, sued the NCAA. The plaintiffs argued by not allowing athletes to have a share of the revenue generated from their images in broadcasts and video games, the NCAA violated federal antitrust laws. Again, that case was six years ago, and here we are today. The NCAA is still procrastinating on what is settled law. Back to Michael. Now, I had the chance to write uh, with, with Ed O'Bannon, his book, Court Justice. And you know, Ed O'Bannon's case should have been a wake-up call for the NCAA, and he won. I mean, the fact that they, they lost at a district court level and a U.S. Court of Federal, uh, Federal Appeals, Ninth Circuit. Uh, they didn't take the steps that they needed to at that point. So what's going to happen? I think the state-by-state approach is problematic because – for the reasons we just mentioned, some states you can't sign with the gambling company, some can, some states, uh, I think Texas law, the proposal doesn't allow for agents. I mean, there are all these, everywhere is going to be a little bit different. And the, the problem, I mean, it's a problem in the sense that athletes' rights are going to be different state by state. The NCAA could actually use that as, as a, a litigation weapon, the fact that there are going to be differences in state law. And they did this back in the early 90s. So in the aftermath of the UNLV basketball, men's basketball scandal, 
Nevada passed a statute saying there has to be due process before the NCAA can punish athletes and coaches. And that fl flew in the face of NCAA rules in terms of their own disciplinary process. So the NCAA goes to court and say, you can't, you can't do that, Nevada. And they sued the governor of the state. They say, you, you can't do that because you're interfering with our contracts with other schools in Nevada and elsewhere. And you're also affecting the commerce in other states because we are unable to have a national set of rules if we have to change our rules to accommodate one state. And the, there's a patchwork problem. The patchwork problem is the NCAA can never get a national standard if every state is doing its own different thing. So it becomes impossible to function as a national entity. So that worked for the NCAA. They, got, they, they won the case against uh, Nevada. And I'm not saying that's what's gonna happen here, but it wouldn't shock me if the NCAA sought restraining orders in those states that have NIL statutes going into effect where they're going to say you are you are interfering with our contracts with membership contracts with other schools and you are affecting the commerce in other states the, con the US constitution has a contracts clause and a commerce clause they don't allow those things and i'm not saying that will happen but that's certainly a possibility Th this patchwork issue is really the problem of the state by state approach and and again i think the NCAA could use it if they chose to go to court the problem for the NCAA is that that strategy collapses if they lose in any of those states, right? So it's like one of these, you got to win, you got you to you run the table in those cases. And not only that, the, the analogy doesn't necessarily hold up because here we're talking about the relationship between the athlete and a third party, an apparel company, a summer camp, an influencing company. Whereas in the past with the UNLV story, it was about the relationship between the school and the player or the coach. So I don't know. I mean, it's going to be fun. I'll tell you that. Now the NCAA <laughs> could come up with a national standard before then. I, I don't know why they haven't. They could. Uh, Congress could also pass a law. Uh, but here's the danger for the NCAA by, by sort of inviting Congress to weigh in. Some in Congress have come up with other things like revenue sharing, or most recently, having college athletes be declared employees. This is the danger of having someone else come up with your rules. Right. They may not come up with the rules you want. That's a great segue because, you know, this is a related issue, but, you know, just this past Thursday, May 27th, U.S. Senators Chris Murphy of Connecticut and Bernie Sanders of Vermont joined Jamal Bowman of New York in the House of Representatives and Andy Levin of Michigan and Lori Trahan of Massachusetts and introduced the College Athlete Right to Organize Act. Now, this, too, has been a longstanding question around should players be employees i mean this is how this kind of gave birth to the whole 
existence of the NCAA and, and, and this whole idea of amateurism. And so it's not exactly the same thing as the NIL, because like you say, that's about a third party. That's about our, you know, a kind of liberty issue, but it's very connected because if players can organize as employees and players can lean into the, you know, rights that they have through employment law in the, in the United States, they have a whole new set of teeth around how they interact in this. So tell us a little bit about how these things you've just, you've just described very well how the NCAA may have backed itself into a corner. Um, But tell us a little bit more about what this could mean that on the federal level, this employment um, question is, is up for grabs now, whereas at the state level, there's this patchwork thing happening. Could, could the NCAA be getting a double whammy now from, <laughs> from the federal and um, state level? It's possible. I, I'm skeptical that this bill is going to have a lot of traction just because the, the more incremental or modest bills regarding NIL have not advanced past their committees. There have been no hearings. There's no votes. This proposal is just dramatically uh, different. As you know, this is about declaring college athletes employees. And not only that, but amending the National Labor Relations Act to say that whether the the employee athlete is at a private or public school, he or she will be an employee and can enter into a uh, union. I mean, this is just just dramatically different from federal labor law because under the National Labor Relations Act, it governs private employers, so private colleges. You know, we, we, about eight years ago, Kane Coulter and Northwestern football players brought uh, a case, right. an NLRB petition saying that they were employees. The reason why it was under the NLRA was because he was at a private, private institution. Yeah. yeah. Public colleges are governed by state law. So this this proposal would take the power away from the states, which I guarantee will wind up in court. Uh, so this, so there, this is this is one of these like if this actually happens, it goes to court pretty quickly. Um, and, and also, you know, it would be interesting if college athletes at Alabama could form a union, but the faculty and staff couldn't. I don't know about the, the sort of wisdom of that, but in any event, the if this became law, it would allow them to unionize and they would enter into collective bargaining relationships with their schools. And they would, as you said, they would negotiate all sorts of things, salary, they would negotiate health care. Uh, they would negotiate uh, presumably some kind of uh, post-playing career fund so that they have, right? right? So there are insurance issues. Now, it could be work hours too, work, work hours. hours and, absolutely. All yeah. of the things that unions... Now, what happens if if they get fired or cut? How does that affect their scholarship? I mean, there's a lot... It's, inter- it's just an interesting topic. I, I don't... My, my sense is that what this really does is it sort of pushes the NIL piece forward because now there's like this far reaching thing that if they don't do NIL, there's something else coming. So uh, we'll see. It's, it's a, there's a lot going on. That's so, an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> going <it>. on. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Going Deep. 
on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Going Deep and our guest, Michael McCann, a journalist, a lawyer, a teacher, all talking to us about name, image, and likeness. There's a few companies, one called Influencer, uh, led by this uh, a man named Jim Cavalli, that's really joined forces with hundreds of colleges throughout the country to try to help college athletes enhance their brand, but he's working with the university as well to make sure that they maintain their compliance. Now, I happen to think that, I mean, cheerleaders don't fall under the NCAA guidelines, and there's cheerleaders that make $5,000 per post as social influencers on Instagram. Imagine what Trevor Lawrence could make someday if he decided to promote a product, maybe shampoo or something. (laughs) Um, Do you know what, do you know anything about like influencer or how these universities are going to try to maintain some degree of compliance. Compliance is going to be a big, big issue going forward in this. Yeah. I mean, and what is, what will they be complying to? Because if these laws go into effect, the NCAA's rules are going to be opposed to those laws. So they, as it stands now, they, they can't comply with both, right? They can comply with state law and NCAA rules. So I think what these companies are doing is saying, eventually this will get sorted out. And once it gets sorted out, you should be ready. And you should be, you should, you don't, you, the college really doesn't know much about influencing. You have a, you have a compliance officer or two, maybe three, you have athletic, you have an athletic director or deputy athletic director. None of you probably have background in valuation None of you probably have deep connections with influencing companies. So these larger companies are coming in to say, we can provide those services, you pay us. And I think it serves two functions. One is that it gives the school a competitive advantage when it's recruiting. It can say, look, we will help you. Uh, Well, we have a company that can help you with NIL stuff. Uh, And secondly, it gives them some control. Now the danger, or maybe danger is too strong of a word, but the, the worry I would have for a school is if they are providing in some form or another advisory services to their athletes on NIL opportunities, they better not be doing it in a way that violates Title IX. So if the school is providing value and they're focused on the men's basketball team and the football team and the women are not getting the same level of attention, I mean, we'd have to see how the Title IX analysis plays out, but there's at least a possible Title IX problem with that if the men are sort of getting disproportionate share of the attention. This always comes up with schools, right? And, it's, and, it's, and it's sometimes it's number of spots, uh, scholarship spots, but it's also things like website presence, right? If you go on a university athletic department website, it doesn't just focus on the football team. It focuses 
on all of the teams. And I would think that that same logic holds true uh, with, with this. So I guess if a school outsources it to someone else, maybe that addresses the Title IX issue. I'm not sure. Kind of like the pooling arrangement we were talking about in Georgia, there's something that just doesn't smell right. In some ways, maybe it insulates the school from, you know, well, we hired this company and yeah, maybe we can pass the buck. You know, they can say that, but there are Title IX lawyers that that won't buy it. You know, they, yeah. they that's their world and that's yeah. their court. So schools and schools know that. So uh, I always say with when when any organization tries to come up with some end around, uh, the lawyers are watching and they're really <laughs> good at what they do. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and there's some there are some kind of intangible benefits to universities contracting with these companies because it's kind of like, you know, free publicity for them, yeah. too, if their athletes are you know, have millions of followers on Instagram. Um, that's publicity for their school that they're not really having to. I mean, hopefully it's good publicity. You know, hopefully the the athlete's not doing something that, um, you know, is, is counter to the university's identity or, or mission, but gets their name out there. It's exposure. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see that relationship play out where uh, these companies will provide expertise that will be helpful to the athletes and and maybe take some responsibility away from schools. But what about the athletes that want to do their own thing and that don't want to be part of a school? Say say it's a one-and-done basketball player who's going to the NBA. Uh, He's he's probably thinking of all different – he has different interests at stake than, than sort of doing the school thing, um, doing the school-sponsored NIL company. It it will be really fascinating to see how it watches and how the compliance issue, what what are they even complying? You know, what, how do you comply with conflicting state law and NCAA contractual obligations? It's, uh, for my world, it's really interesting, but I, I think for schools, it's a tough time coming up, especially the athletic department staff, where they're looking at, potentially chaos. Now, the NCAA this month in June could come up with a set of rules that address NIL, and they would probably be doing themselves a world of benefit, I think, if they did that. But that doesn't resolve the issue because it could conflict with state law. And all it takes is one athlete to file a lawsuit in that state saying, I have a right that you've denied me under state law. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't end. It, it, it didn't it didn't have to be in this world. None of these state laws would have happened if the NCAA had come up with an NIL policy. Right. This is this is purely a 20 fun- years ago, 20 years ago. This is a function of waiting. Yeah. Wait. And, and and this is what this is what happens. I was just going to say inertia is usually in place because somebody is benefiting from that inertia. So I think that there's a reason why it's been so entrenched at that level. Um, I think it'll be interesting to play out in a lot of levels. Again, circling back before we close to just how will it impact athletes, particularly athletes who 
come from low resource um, backgrounds and are very motivated to find other revenue streams in their life and how will they, you know, how will universities truly provide support and partnership for them um, so that they won't be exploited by either the university or the endorsers. Um, That's yeah. so there's a lot there. There's a new layer to navigate for, for athletes as well. And I hope it leads to player agents that are ethical, mm-hmm. that are smart and that could help them. I think that they will play a big part of this. You know, people think sports agents are bad. Like, you know, they're this sort of, uh, you know, caricature of them, uh, the Jerry Maguire, you know, like the, most agents are not like that. I know a lot of right. them. Right. Exactly. We do too. Yeah. They're, they're advocates. They're, they're advocates. advocates. And if advocates. we, and if we would stop criminalizing having an agent, then I think we could also nurture the conditions for agents to be really better, a better part of a player support system. Same with financial advisors and other people that players could have around them to truly be there for their interests. They, 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 they deserve that. The players deserve that and they yeah. need that. Yeah. And I would just go, uh, Marsha, your question about the Georgia law, I, I should have added that part of that law requires that there be business, basic business, sort of personal accounting type courses so that players get some background of that. I think that's helpful too, to educate them. Absolutely. Right. I mean, in sort of the practical things of opening a bank account and you know, these are things that we experience through life, but it's partly a function of the life that we live, right? That we're in a position to open a bank account, things like that. Uh, If one isn't, then having that education, I think, is even more important. Amen. Well, Mike, as you said, it's going to be an interesting few few weeks, maybe, few months, few years, and uh, maybe we could get you to promise to come back and join us sometime on going deep and process kind of what's happened thank you very much all right thank you for having me and thank you for your work take care thank you very much bye-bye was a really interesting conversation um it's it's certainly important when it comes to new legislation and all the wrangling and finagling that um you know these issues have to go through in in terms of laws and and the courts to hear from a lawyer that was a that was a a good use of of our time on going deep what do you think well, one of the things that hit me was he talked about how the NCAA could have solved this years ago in the Ed O'Bannon case, but kept kicking the can down the road. And it was actually something you said that really kind of hit me right in the gut was that this inertia 
really has over the years benefited uh, the people that are in power. And I was wondering if you could say something more about that. Yeah, I mean, institutional inertia is one of the calling cards of white supremacy culture. It's it's a way to um, not just delay change, but to build an aversion to change into the structures of the system. So you might see that in the, in the way the NCAA just has so many kind of obscure rules and ways that they enforce things. And then they have all these different committees and structures and, you know, bureaucracies and paperwork and all this and all the stuff about compliance and, you know, it's just, it's really, really murky water with a lot of fine print and a lot of out clauses and in clauses and stuff that people don't even know they're a part of. And so that allows the institution to just really concretize a degree of stasis. And White supremacy loves stasis because it keeps power and resources and influence and and capital, social, both social capital and financial capital concentrated in the hands of the people that built this system in the first place. Right. The system was built to hoard power and resources. So that inertia helps it do what it was built to do. Um, You can see it in a lot of different systems and something like the filibuster would be a great example of that. It's just, it's a way to, to, to wear people down and stall things enough that nothing ever really changes. Well, the NCAA sure has been good at that going slow. It's such a big, big organization with a a rule book thicker than, Mm-hmm. you know, five New York City phone books. Right. And what I'm hearing is that all of that is purposeful to yeah. keep things going slow. So the people in power can stay in power. It seems that now, since they haven't act, acted, as Michael said, the courts are going to have something to say about it and change may be coming. It'll be Interesting. Well, change is coming. It'll be interesting, though, to see how fast these states adopt these NIL uh, laws mm-hmm. uh, in the name of recruiting. Believe me, this show will air Friday morning on June 4th. And I think every day after that, boy, by the time July 1st comes, when the first uh, uh, schools are going to enact their NIL laws. Uh, there may be a handful more uh, schools that are getting in on it as well. Well, I wouldn't count out the NCAA. In fact, I wouldn't count out the fact that maybe this is by design as well, because what we're going to see is a lot of chaos. We're going to see, um, you know, again, part of what we're seeing now is some of the institutional kind of chokehold that is on collegiate athletes around their ability to generate income, they're building a structure around that too. So just like the law in Georgia, 
you read the fine print and there's there's all this stuff in there about that the state could or the universities could retain 75% of what a player earns. And it reminds me of the trust funds that they talked about setting up um, in the O'Bannon years and the time that they were talking about that case. Um, how can we still control these players? How can we still control their means of income? So, well, I think, I, yeah, I just think don't count out the NCAA having a vested interest in this chaos that's about to come, too. As you said, uh, I think it's good advice to read the fine print. Amen. You've been listening to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century, from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep@bpr.org. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.